Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled, Beyond Pulmonary Hypertension Month, Diagnosing and Treating PAH, is provided by AKH and is supported by an educational grant from Actilion Pharmaceuticals, U.S. Division of Janssen Pharmaceuticals. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell, and I would like to welcome my guest, Dr. Valerie McLaughlin, to the program. Dr. McLaughlin is the Associate Chief Clinical Officer for Cardiovascular Services and the Director of the Pulmonary Hypertension Program at the University of Michigan. Dr. McLaughlin is joining me to discuss diagnosis, new therapies, and treatment options regarding pulmonary arterial hypertension. Dr. McLaughlin, welcome to the program. Dr. Russell, thanks for having me. I'm really excited about this. So, great topic. So, why is pulmonary hypertension so difficult to diagnose? Yeah, that's a really great question. And despite our many attempts at education and the advancement of therapies, we're still finding patients much later than we should. On average, it's still about a couple years from the onset of symptoms to diagnosis. And I think one of the reasons for that is because the symptoms are very nonspecific. The initial presenting symptom in most patients is exertional dyspnea. And as you can imagine, there are many, many things that can cause exertional dyspnea. And pulmonary hypertension doesn't jump to the top of the list when a patient complains of exertional dyspnea to their primary care provider. Other symptoms, again, are nonspecific, fatigue, chest discomfort, lightheadedness, leg swelling. So I think that we often find a delay in diagnosis because well-intentioned primary care providers are looking for other more common causes of dyspnea. Perhaps they think a patient has asthma or COPD and they get some pulmonary function tests or try an inhaler, or they think maybe it's ischemia and they order a stress test. So I think that there are delays that are just simply a result of the nonspecific nature of the symptoms. And one thing I always want to explain to primary care providers and frontline cardiologists and pulmonologists who see these patients is to reinforce the importance of looking for those common diagnoses. Common things happen commonly. And so it's perfectly appropriate to go through those evaluations and potential treatments But if the patient doesn't have what you thought they have, or they don't respond to that treatment that you prescribed for what you thought they had, then maybe it's time to look for pulmonary hypertension. I think the other important thing is a lot of times people just get told they're depressed or need to lose weight. And those things are sometimes true, but I think it's always important to look for a more organic cause before we simply attribute symptoms like this to depression or obesity. So as a primary care provider, what should be some of the things I would look for on a result from an echocardiogram? Right. So I think the echo is a great test to order when you're trying to sort out dyspnea and it's not what you thought originally. And we get so much information from an echocardiogram. Of course, one of the things that we get is the estimated pulmonary artery pressure, and that's really valuable information, but it's not the only information that we get on echo. If someone has pulmonary arterial hypertension, we often see right ventricular enlargement and dysfunction. 
we often see right atrial enlargement. We see tricuspid regurgitation. Sometimes in the short axis view, we see septal flattening that's consistent with right ventricular pressure and or volume overload. So there's a lot of signs that express stress on the right heart on the echocardiogram that lead us down the PAH pathway. But in addition, we can look for other potential causes of pulmonary hypertension and dyspnea. And frankly, left heart disease is the most common cardiac cause of dyspnea and of pulmonary hypertension. I think everyone recognizes LV systolic dysfunction because we see a reduced ejection fraction. And so we understand how that can cause dyspnea, how that can cause elevated pulmonary artery pressures. But something that we don't entirely appreciate is LV diastolic dysfunction. We see a normal ejection fraction and we think the LV is normal. But in reality, about half of all heart failure admissions right now are due to diastolic dysfunction or heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. So in that case, we can see left ventricular hypertrophy, we can see Doppler indices of impaired relaxation, and we can see left atrial enlargement. And those are all signs that the patient's symptoms of dyspnea and in fact their pulmonary hypertension could be coming from the left ventricle, from elevated left heart filling pressures. I think in particular, the left atrial size, left atrial volume index or LAVI as they call it, I kind of think of that as the hemoglobin A1C of wedge pressure. A chronically elevated wedge pressure will cause left atrial enlargement. I do want to say a word about the pulmonary artery pressure because that's what everyone focuses on. And the echo is an estimate of pulmonary artery pressure. It's not a perfect measurement. The way we estimate the pulmonary artery systolic pressure on echo is by looking at the velocity of the tricuspid regurgitant jet. And sometimes we get beautiful tracings of the TR velocity. And sometimes we don't, and there's room for interpretation, and sometimes there are errors in that measurement. But then we take that velocity and convert it to a pressure gradient by using the Bernoulli equation. And what that does is it squares the velocity and multiplies by four, and that's the trans-tricuspid pressure gradient. So even if you make a small error estimating the tricuspid regurgitant velocity, that error gets magnified when we square it and multiply it by four. So we can't hang our hat on the estimated RVSP on echocardiogram. And that's one of the reasons why looking for some of these other findings, right ventricular size and function, right atrial size are very important. So for someone like myself, I might view pulmonary hypertension as very binary. You either have it or don't have it. I would imagine that you classify it and group it probably a little more extensively. Could you kind of flush that out for us? Right. That's absolutely true. I mean, pulmonary hypertension is common. It's actually almost not even a disease itself. It often reflects something else. And we'll talk about group one pulmonary arterial hypertension in a moment, but that's a very rare cause of pulmonary hypertension. The most common type of pulmonary hypertension that you as a primary care provider, or even me as a cardiologist, is going to see is group two pulmonary hypertension. 
And that's pulmonary hypertension owing to left heart disease. Anything that elevates the left heart filling pressures, systolic dysfunction, diastolic dysfunction, valvular heart disease, constrictive or restrictive disease, anything that elevates the left heart filling pressures gets transmitted to the pulmonary vasculature and increases the pulmonary artery pressures as well. So that causes pulmonary hypertension, but we often think of it as more of a passive pulmonary hypertension. The pulmonary artery pressures are elevated because they're seeing a high wedge pressure from the left side of the heart. And in fact, if you were to calculate the pulmonary vascular resistance, more often than not, it is normal. So that's group two pulmonary hypertension, very common. And the most important thing is to treat the underlying left heart disease and optimize volume status. Group three pulmonary hypertension is that due to lung disease and hypoxemia. So anything that causes hypoxemia, IPF, COPD, even sleep disordered breathing causes the pulmonary vasculature to constrict, and that can cause a modest elevation of pulmonary artery pressures. And again, that's very common. Group four pulmonary hypertension is less common, but very important to differentiate from pulmonary arterial hypertension because the treatment is so different. And that is chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. We all know that PEs are common, about 600,000 that we know of every year in the U.S. And most of the patients will go on to resolve that clot burden, either their natural fibrinolysis in their body or with anticoagulation. And most of them never have chronic sequelae. But perhaps 3 or 4% of patients don't resolve that acute PE, and it goes on to form chronic scar tissue in the pulmonary vasculature. And for lack of a better term, ultimately it blocks the pipes. And then the right heart has to push harder to get the blood flow through. And we end up with chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. And to exclude chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, when we're working someone with pulmonary hypertension up, the ventilation perfusion scan is the most sensitive study. And it's really important to exclude that because sometimes we can cure a patient with chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension with a surgical procedure called a pulmonary end arterectomy. And then group five is really unclear and multifactorial mechanisms. We have patients with end-stage renal disease on dialysis. We have some of the glycogen storage diseases. We have some of the hematologic diseases, sickle cell and the like. And so that's a kind of a unique category. But coming back to group one pulmonary arterial hypertension, which is what we're focusing on because we have learned so much about this disease over the recent decades and we have so many therapies. The prototype of this disease is idiopathic or what was formerly called primary pulmonary hypertension. The hemodynamic definition includes a mean pulmonary artery pressure over 20 with a normal left heart filling pressure, a wedge or LBEDP of less than 15, and a calculated pulmonary vascular resistance above three wood units. And then, of course, excluding all of the other causes of pulmonary hypertension that I just mentioned. It tends to afflict younger individuals, although we've seen over the years that mean age is going up. It was 38 in the NIH registry in the 1980s. It's probably in the low 50s now. And it tends to affect women more than men. 
Then there is a heritable cause. There are many genes that have been identified to cause pulmonary arterial hypertension, but the most frequent one is gene, that defect that affects the BNPR2 receptor. And that can be passed down as autosomal dominant with incomplete penetrance. So it can skip generations. So sometimes taking a family history is challenging. We've learned that certain drugs and toxins can induce pulmonary arterial hypertension. It was the diet pills a couple of decades ago. We see it more with methamphetamine now. And then there are other disorders that have a higher frequency of pulmonary arterial hypertension, things like the connective tissue diseases, specifically scleroderma, congenital heart disease, or systemic to pulmonary shunts can ultimately cause pulmonary arterial hypertension liver disease, portal pulmonary hypertension. There's a higher frequency in patients with HIV infection as well. So there are many, many things that can cause pulmonary hypertension. And as we go through our evaluation, we need to be very methodical about looking for all of those different disorders because they're treated very differently. So boy, there's a lot of things that cause pulmonary hypertension. And not everyone has a Dr. McLaughlin local to refer them on to. So for a doctor like myself in any town USA who has a suspicion based on electrocardiogram, what would be some of the things that you would start doing in the workup maybe before you would refer them on to someone who might have a little bit of interest in pulmonary arterial hypertension? Sure, that's a great question. And we talked a little bit about the history, the exertional dyspnea. Let me just mention that there are some physical exam findings to be on the lookout for, although early in the course of the disease, they can be quite subtle. The right ventricular heave, you feel that as you put the, your palm on their sternum, the loud P2, hearing that pulmonic component of the second heart sound, loud even as you escalate towards the apex is another one, a reduced carotid upstroke, elevated JVP. Notably, the lungs are clear in patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension. But you've said EKG. On the EKG, we look for right axis deviation, right ventricular strain. Sometimes they have a right bundle. There are also things on the EKG that will make you think of left heart disease. Again, group two, which is the most common, and that might be LVH or left atrial enlargement. Or if you see AFib, that's almost always going to be left heart disease. We get some clues from the chest x-ray. A patient with group one pulmonary arterial hypertension may have enlarged pulmonary arteries. And on the lateral, you may see right ventricular enlargement. If you see pulmonary congestion, again, that's a sign that it could be group two pulmonary hypertension. Or of course, there are signs on the chest x-ray of COPD or IPF with which everyone is familiar. We talked about the echo findings already. I think the other studies that are in the diagnostic algorithm that can easily be done locally are pulmonary function tests. Look for obstructive or restrictive disease. Look at the DLCO, which tends to be low specifically in patients with connective tissue diseases. I've mentioned the ventilation perfusion scan already. That's critical to rule out chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. Sometimes we need additional testing like a CT if we suspect lung disease or a TEE if we suspect an intracardiac shunt. I think the important thing is to remember, though, is that you cannot make the diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension without a right heart catheterization. And whether that everyone like you has access to that or not, I think it depends on the practice environment. I think there is access to right heart catheterizations in many practices. And it's important to do a very complete right heart catheterization 
Sometimes I see right heart casts that only have a pulmonary artery pressure, or they don't have a wedge pressure or cardiac output. So it's important that if you're going to do the right heart cath locally, the operator knows all the measurements they need to get for pulmonary hypertension evaluation, which include not just the filling pressures on the right and left side of the heart and the pulmonary artery pressure, but also saturations, cardiac output. And sometimes if it's group one pulmonary arterial hypertension, specifically idiopathic, heritable, or anorexogen-induced or drug and toxin-induced, we need to do a vasodilator challenge in the cath lab. For those who are just joining us, this is CME on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell, and I have the pleasure of speaking with our guest, Dr. Valerie McLaughlin, on the topic of pulmonary arterial hypertension. So once that patient is diagnosed, you diagnose a patient who's come to your center with pulmonary arterial hypertension. How do you then stratify them beyond that? And probably it has implications, I would imagine, for treatment and prognosis, correct? Yes, absolutely. And that's a really great question. We've learned so much about risk stratification over the past few years. And most of what we've learned comes from observational registries, but it's highly reproducible. So the things that we're looking at include functional class. And whenever we talk to a patient, we categorize their functional class. It's a variation on the New York Heart Association functional class. One is they can do anything they want and they don't get short of breath. Four is they have shortness of breath at rest or can't even walk across the room or do ADLs without shortness of breath. And two and three are in between. Two is they have shortness of breath with more moderate activities. You know, maybe they can make it up one flight of stairs, but they get short of breath with the second. And three is they get short of breath with more modest activities. They can't make it up the flight of stairs, for example. And as crude as functional class is, it's highly prognostic. So that goes into our risk stratification. We also often use an objective assessment of exercise tolerance that these patients who have this impairment can do. It's called a six-minute hall walk, often used in heart failure and, and some other disease states but it's simply how far the patient can walk in six minutes. And we have different ways of correcting that you know, with what is expected for their age, height, and gender. And so we always have to put that number in perspective. But from registries, we've learned that 440 meters is a dividing parameter. If a patient can walk over 440 meters, their prognosis is much better than if they can't. And if they walk below 165 meters, that's a really bad sign. We've learned a great deal about biomarkers, BNP, NT, pro-BNP. It's very easy to do. We do it every time we see a patient in clinic, just like we assess their functional class and their six-minute hall walk, and it's highly prognostic. And there are a number of risk scores that just take those three very simple measurements functional class, six-minute hall walk, and biomarker, and calculate a risk score. Now, the other things that also are important include hemodynamics. And interestingly enough, the main prognostic indicator on hemodynamics is not pulmonary artery pressure. That defines the disease, but it doesn't define the prognosis. Really, what defines the prognosis is the function of the right ventricle. And that's measured on hemodynamics by right atrial pressure and by cardiac index. So those are very important numbers. We don't repeat them, obviously, every clinic visit like we do the functional class, hall walk, and BNP, but they're really important 
parameters as well. There are other things that are non-modifiable that influence prognosis, including age. You know, older people tend to do worse. Men tend to do worse than women. And there are some subtypes of pulmonary arterial hypertension that have a poor prognosis, specifically portopulmonary hypertension and patients with connective tissue diseases. So you and I have been in practice for a while, and I think we've seen over the course of our career going from virtually no treatments to a lot of exciting new treatments. So can you give me an overview of some of these exciting treatments that have emerged over the last few years? Yeah, Dr. Russell, that's a great point. And you're right. When I started practice, there was nothing for pulmonary arterial hypertension. And it was just my first year after fellowship that the first drug got FDA approved. That was IV epoprostenol. And that was almost, I guess it's almost three decades ago. Now I'm dating myself, but we now have over a dozen FDA approved therapies to treat this disease. We've made tremendous progress. The current therapies that we have fall into three broad categories that target biologic abnormalities in patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension. We can start with the prostacyclin pathway first. Patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension don't make enough prostacyclin I2. They, they don't have enough prostacyclin synthase, and we can replace prostacyclins in a variety of ways. We started out back in 1995 with intravenous, continuous intravenous infusion, and these are still some of the most potent therapies that we have available. But we now have other routes of administration, including continuous subcutaneous, intermittent inhaled, and oral formulations of both prostacycline analogs and prostacycline receptor agonists. So they work on the prostacycline pathway via a different mechanism, not replacing prostacycline, but agonizing the prostacycline receptor. And many studies with these agents have demonstrated improvements in functional class, in six-minute hall walk, and even the very first study of IV epoprostenol demonstrated an improvement in survival. And of course, these are effective therapies. The most effective parenteral prostacyclines, IV and sub-Q, also have some drawbacks. We need to be very cautious and careful with these therapies because you can get line infections or site irritation. And so this needs to be managed generally in an expert center. The next pathway that we were able to attack is the endothelin pathway. Patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension make too much endothelin, which binds to the endothelin A and B receptors on smooth muscle cells and stimulates vasoconstriction. And we have three oral agents that block endothelin receptors, bosentin, masitentin, and ambrosentin, which are all FDA approved and are often part of the initial therapy for patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension. And then we have the nitric oxide pathway where there's a deficiency in nitric oxide synthase and patients simply don't produce enough nitric oxide, which is a vasodilator. And we have the PD-5 inhibitor, sildenafil and tadalafil, which essentially inhibit the hydrolysis of cyclic GMP, again, have been studied in pulmonary arterial hypertension, demonstrating improvements in hall walks. And we also have riosiguat, which is a soluble guanate cyclase stimulator. So it acts independently of nitric oxide to stimulate the pathway. And again, improvements in hall walk and hemodynamics. So we have lots of therapies and we've learned a lot about how to use them over the years. We've learned that for many patients, upfront combination therapy 
with an ERA and PDE5 results in better outcomes. We've learned mostly from observational studies that if a patient is at very high risk, be it because they're functional class four or because their right atrial pressure is 20 and their cardiac index is 1.7, they do better with upfront therapy, combination therapy that includes a parenteral prostacycline. As I look back and as you were talking about when we both first started practice, it was easy to have these conversations with patients. The first, you know, I don't know, five years, eight years of me practicing pulmonary hypertension was very easy. We had one therapy. That was the only choice. And now our conversations about therapy are very complex and we need to take into account how sick the patient is, what their capabilities are in terms of the different types of therapies, what the side effects are, what their goals are. And it's great to have so many options in our treatment armamentarium. And I think in perspective, looking at 30 years, right, we've kind of changed, I think, our paradigm to really individualizing care to each particular patient. So when you individualize care in a sea of 12 plus medicines, how do you optimize that care? Yeah, that's a great question. And we've really moved on to what we call risk-based therapy, right? Like our goal is to try to optimize the risk of the patient. We talked a little bit about the risk scores and the risk calculators and even the risk calculators that just have the three variables, functional class, HALWOC, and BNP are very accurate, very predictive of five-year risk. And if we can get that patient into the low-risk category, having their functional class be one or two, having their HALWOC be greater than 440, and having their BNP less than 50, we know they're going to do well. And so we look at the treatment algorithm as what do we need to do to get that patient to low risk? So most of the time when we initially make a diagnosis, we start upfront combination therapy. Studies have shown that outcomes are better with that, ERA, PD-5. There's always going to be the small proportion of patients that need to go on a prostacycline, but we make that first choice and then we reassess the patient in three months, four months. We reassess them. We recalculate their risk score. And if they're not at low risk, we need to do something different. We need to add another therapy, often a prostacycline, or we need to perhaps switch a PD-5 to an SGC stimulator. We need to escalate therapy to try to drive that patient into the low risk status. And we have many options of doing that right now. We also have a number of investigational studies, and sometimes we can't get a patient into the low-risk status with our therapies, and we need to think about other options, such as lung transplantation. But it's shared decision-making. It's a hot term, but it really applies to our patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension, given all of these therapies, their side effects, some of the complicated nature of some of the therapies, and really the prognosis of this disease. That was so terrific. And thank you for demystifying a really complex topic. So with that, I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Valerie McLaughlin, for speaking with me in our ReachMD audience. Great. Thank you, Dr. Russell. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by AKH and is supported by an educational grant from Actilian Pharmaceuticals U.S., division of Janssen Pharmaceuticals. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, Go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.